I'm excited about our new series. We are, um, we're going to take the new year and begin to just uh, talk about how we are moving forward. And in this morning, the topic is moving forward in worship. Amen? What an interesting topic for now, as so many for so long have been unable to engage in what we would define or what we would call corporate worship together as the body of Christ gathers and hears the preached word, sings uh, in the presence of God and in the presence of each other to each other, hymns and uh, songs to each other as we pray together and confess, as we uh, come to the Lord's table, as we engage in uh, public baptism. What an amazing gift we have from God and our ability to worship. And we're coming this morning to the Word of God and, and declaring that as a church, as Renovation Church, we're moving forward in worship. Amen? There is no greater opportunity. There is no greater end, not a means, but an end, than to be created people who worship their God. Amen? Uh, take a look at this picture in Revelation chapter 5. Mike read Revelation chapter 4 leading into this. Uh, what a beautiful sight. What a beautiful picture we get as John sees this. And it, and it gives us, I think, a, a glimpse into the throne room of God. It gives us a glimpse into reality. It gives us a glimpse into the gravity of what we do as people and what we're designed to do as God's people. Revelation chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, what did they do? They fell down before the lamb each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen? It's the word of the Lord. What a beautiful picture that we see here in the book of Revelation. What an insight. What a, what a description into really what life is about as we get a picture, a glimpse of the throne room of God. And at the center of this picture is who? The lamb that was slain. At the center of this picture is Jesus, who is the only one worthy to open the scroll. Jesus, pictured as the slain lamb, the one who paid the price, giving us access into the presence of God. And, and you see the priests and the elders and the angels and, and everybody doing what? The only thing that's appropriate to do in the presence of God. Falling down and worshiping. So we, we declare this morning that we are moving forward in worship. And, and I think there's some need here to define what are we talking about when we say worship? What is worship really all about? Why do we do it? What, what, is the, what is the church's role? What is the Christian supposed to do? How are we supposed to think? about worship. And there's a lot of ways we could go here. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. Um, there's, there's, there's a reality that we see in the New Testament where we, we see a radical inward focus um, as opposed to a ceremonial or a sacrificial focus. As, as, uh, you see the word for worship in the Old Testament over 171 times uh, declared in the Old Testament really pictures an outward bowing. Right? And you see the same word translated in the New Testament in Revelation, where we just read. You see this outward bowing, this, this reverence, this awe. There's, there's a gravity to it, is there not? To worship in light of who God is. And you see it throughout the Old Testament as, as you read about worship in the sacrificial system and in the temple and in the way that God's people worshiped. There was a, an outward uh, reverence. There was an outward bowing that the word worship depicts. And it's used over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, 171 times. In the New Testament, the translation for that particular word for worship you see in the Gospel 26 times. And it's always in reference to Christ incarnate who is with us. We just celebrated that over Christmas, right? God with us. And you see people coming to Jesus and doing what? Bowing and falling in reverence. And you also see it 21 times in the book of Revelation. This worship 
What's interesting is I was kind of studying the idea of worship, and as we uh, cast vision in January 2021 for how we as Renovation Church are moving forward in worship, as I began to kind of look through what does it mean to worship, that particular word that's used 171 times in the Old Testament, 26 times in the Gospels, and 21 times in Revelation is almost completely absent except for one time in the epistles. Why? What's changed? Well, you see a picture of it in this passage of Revelation. Jesus. Jesus at the center of the picture. The lamb that was slain. And and as the, uh, the apostles write these epistles to the churches and communicate about worship, and they communicate about corporate worship, right? And 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of the whole church gathering together in 1 Corinthians 14 13. In Acts 2, we see uh, them speaking of the early church attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes. In Hebrews, we read it often. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see not to neglect the gathering of, of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. There is priority. Please hear me. There is priority. There is necessity for us as the people of God, patterned through the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament, to gather together, to hear the preached word, to worship God in song. As you see in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, don't get drunk with with wine, but come together and and sing with each other hymns and spiritual songs, and and gather and and worship and sing together, as Paul declares in Ephesians chapter 5. So there's, there's uh, words for worship. There's the way that the New Testament treats worship in the context of the corporate gathering. But what we see in the, the epistles is a radical change from outward express, expressions of ceremony to an inward heart worship because of Jesus. Worship moves radically inward in the New Testament epistles. Because of Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Take a look at this with me. One of my favorite uh, narratives in the New Testament. Anybody uh, watch the, the TV series that is web-based that came out called The Chosen? Anybody take a look at that? It's, it's very, very interesting. They, they have done, I think, a very, uh, an excellent job. And it's Jesus calling his disciples. It's the life of Christ. It, it was not released on Netflix or any kind of streaming device, but it is released on the web. And you can stream it to your TV. But it's called, is it called The Chosen? Chosen. Yeah. Incredible job. And the only reason I ask that, and I think of that, is, is the last episode of the first season was this John chapter 4 moment at the woman uh, with Jesus and the woman at the well. And it was displayed so beautifully. Uh, I, I cried. Like, I cried at that. But I cried like a baby. Like, like, I cry at, like, the Folgers commercial where the dude comes home from, from the military and he makes the coffee and the mom smells the coffee and wakes up and, he, and I, my wife looks at me and I'm like, please. It's terrible. <clears throat> But I cried at this because it was so beautiful the way they displayed it. But read this chapter with me or read this narrative with me. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So here's Jesus 
he's coming through Samaria, and instead of walking around Samaria as a Jewish man would have customarily done to not engage Samaritan people, Jesus, of course, uh, walks right through the center for the purpose of engaging the Samaritans and, and specifically the Samaritan woman. So let's read it together in John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, You knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his sons? And his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of well of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right, saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Here's where I want to focus. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit, and in truth. So what do we see here? We see a transition. Jesus comes through Samaria and he engages this woman and he is prophesying to her. He's speaking to her about things in her life that only God would know and and he's having this impact and she turns the conversation to worship and she says, Jesus, you guys worship in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain. And Jesus says, the hour is coming. When you're not going to, it's not going to matter if you worship on the mountain or if you worship in Jerusalem. It's not going to be about the place. Mountain, Jerusalem, the hour's coming and is now here because of me, because of the Christ, because of the Messiah. That worship is going to be what? Spirit and truth. Not about place, 
mountain or Jerusalem, but about spirit and truth. You see, Jesus transitioning what worship really looks like as, as the ceremonial worship all pointed to Christ. Now because of the picture and revelation that we see, the Lamb of God that was slain for the world, we now are, are in a place where worship isn't about the place, the physical outward place that you go, whether it be the temple or, or this place. As you notice in this place, you don't really see a lot of symbols. We do have a cross. We have some pictures with some, with some things in them. But, but we, don't, we don't have uh, huge artistic uh, statues or huge artistic um, um, paintings or stained glass as some churches do. And I believe in our tradition that that's intentional. Because what we see is, is worship, the word for worship, the description of worship, the heart of worship has gone away from sacrificial outward place uh, ceremonial things to a radical inward spirit, truth-driven, spirit-filled worship in our hearts because of Christ. Amen? Now that doesn't take away from corporate worship. It drives corporate worship. It drives our coming together and worshiping and singing hymns and, and songs and spiritual songs together, praying together, confessing together, reading the Word together. What we begin to see as you read Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship, that the word for worship be begins to transition into an all-of-life worship because of what Christ has done, because of who Christ is. Because of the gospel, our lives now become a response of worship to Him as we worship personally, as we worship with our families, and as we importantly, and what we're focusing on this morning, come together as the body of Christ and worship corporately. Amen? Worship's all of life. Because of Jesus, the response of our life is worship. We get to have, but at the end of the day, really, John Piper says it this way famously. This has become a, the, a thesis of, of almost every book he's written. But it's, it's brilliant. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Amen? So what do we see in the Scriptures? We see God passionate for His glory, do we not? We see a God who's passionate about being worshipped. To the point that C.S. Lewis even, even states uh, famously in one of his books, he says, hold on, let me see if I can find it, that, that he's initially uh, annoyed at this God who's so passionate for His glory and so passionate for His worship. And we could read over and over again, there is passage after passage after passage that I can list for you online, where God talks about, he, he, he redeems Israel for His glory, He saves His people for His glory, the gospel is about His glory, His redemption of your life is about His glory, our worship is about His glory, and you will see over and over and over and over and over again, through the Psalms, through the Scriptures, through everything that really has to do with God engaging His people, or God engaging us, it's always for what? His glory, that He would be glorified. 
And, and C.S. Lewis uh, famously quotes, God reminded me of an old woman searching for compliments. That's what C.S. Lewis said initially. As he, as he viewed this God that is jealous for his glory. Now, if you think about it, as a person, if you were pursuing glory in that way, you'd be uh, an awful person to be around, would you not? I mean, the reality is, if we were those who pursued our own glory and people to praise us, there would be you would be arrogant, you would be distasteful, you would not be a good person to be around. So, so there's this idea in the mind of some as you think about this God who is jealous for His glory, who's all about His glory, who's all about being praised by His people. The atheist C.S. Lewis, before coming to Christ, said, "This God looks to me as if an old woman searching for compliments. Who is this God that is jealous for His glory?" And then C.S. Lewis said this. The most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliments that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Isn't that beautiful? Here's the reality of our worship. First of all, God, who is a grave, as we see this picture in Revelation, who is an sometimes awful, fearful, large, uh, all-consuming, God. There's a gravity to who He is in His worship. And He requires of us worship. He requires of us Him being glorified. But He does that to our own joy because He is the most valuable thing there is to worship. Amen? And the value of worshiping God is, is He's glorified in us as we enjoy Him. Think about that quote about the lovers, the, the idea of saying to your wife or your, your husband, your spouse, or the person you love, you're beautiful. The joy in the consuming, or the consummation of the praise is in saying it. You ever listen to teenagers on the phone 
I love you. No, I love you. You hang up. No, you hang up. Right? Like the, 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 the almost disgustingness of teenage romance, right? But you see in the saying of it, it brings joy. It can, it, it's the consummation of it. There's a delight and there is a joy in, in the, the, the giving of the verbal compliment, of the verbal praise. There is nothing more valuable for us to do than to praise God. There is nothing of greater value than for us to worship Him. He is of greatest value. And do we not overflow with praise for all sorts of other things that we value all the time? Do we not do that? We prayed a confession about it this morning. So often, another famous quote of C.S. Lewis is, 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 we are so often like a child making mud pies in the dirt because we can't conceive of what a vacation on the beach would be like. We're so often satisfied with the counterfeit because we can't even conceive of the joy of what it would mean to have the real thing. And what we're saying this morning, what we see in the scriptures is that that life is about the worship of the most valuable thing. We worship Him for who He is, because He is so valuable, because He is so great, and we can't outgive Him. In our giving of worship and praise to Him, what that does is it brings joy, because it is the thing that we get at the end. We don't worship Him for His gift. We worship Him for who He is. Amen? See, worship is not... Worship is not a means to an end. Worship is the end. Amen? Worship is not, uh, is not about something else. We don't come together and gather to worship God so that we can uh, raise money, so that we can bring people together and fill the seats, so that we can entertain and maybe appeal to the crowd. We don't come together on a Sunday morning and, and worship for the purpose necessarily of, of just evangelism so that people hear the word. We don't come together and worship to motivate some a project or an act of service. We don't just come together to worship to build community. Our worship isn't about a means to doing something else. Our worship is about who He is. It's what we get to do. It's who we get. It, it should be uh, the, the purpose of our affections and our joy should be Him. Amen? All of life is worship of Him because of who He is. We worship God as an end in itself. Can you imagine if I said to my wife, I love her, and I have such strong feelings about you, and I love you so much, and I'm saying this to you because I really hope that you will go make me something really good to eat. Right? You would never say that. Man, you are so wonderful. You are so beautiful. You are so amazing. I love you so much. I have so much affection for you. Could you please go take care of the kids for me so that I don't have to get up? It's not a means to an end. It's not 
a means to get gifts from him. It's not about, we don't, the purpose of our gathering on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, as we come together as the people of God who have been redeemed by the lamb that was slain, is, is not for any other reason than to what? To worship him and give him glory. Amen? And enjoy him as our primary source of enjoyment as he's glorified in us. Piper says it this way, that the pursuit of joy in God is our highest duty, not his gifts, but the pursuit of God. I love Psalm 42. If you could turn there with me. This should be the state of our heart that pertains to God. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. You hear David's heart here is distraught. You see, the picture in Psalm 42 is David is empty and he's starving. His tears have been his food. He's struggling. And what does he do to rouse his soul? He remembers the throng. He remembers corporate worship. He calls to memory being with the people of God and worshiping God. And he says, like a deer pants for water, my soul it thirsts for you. And we see a picture of of this inward heart worship, this longing for God. As we come together, you know, and I've heard preachers, and I think at times I've even said this, you know, mistakenly, or I haven't been careful with my words, as we say to people, you don't come to, you don't come to get, you come to give, right? Don't come to church to get fed, you come to get. Listen, there's some immaturity in that statement, and, and we need to be careful, because you should come to get. We should come starving, thirsting, longing for God as we come together and worship Him with God's people. Now, I understand what someone's saying when they say that, that we should come to give praise and not primarily uh, come out of a selfishness. But there's a reality of our worship that... That we need God. We long for God. We are desperate for God. Of the, the God of greatest value. And we come and we, we come for Him because He is who we get. We come thirsting and in need like a deer. Pants for water. So my soul thirsts for you. This radical inward heart of worship.
worship that comes and expresses worship and prayer and in the hearing of the word and the singing of songs and in confession and in, 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 in the elements and the, in the way that God has prescribed for us to worship, this heart that expresses that worship, there should be affection to it. And I know some of the Reformed folks that, of which I am one, they get all nervous about that. What are you talking about, all this emotional stuff? said spirit and truth. And the reality is the truth, we worship in the truth of who God is. And it should drive in us a doxology. It should drive in us the truth of who God is. should drive in us a spiritual heart of worship where our affections and our heart and our emotions are drawn to God. Amen? Jonathan Edwards actually said this. And it drove other pastors in Boston crazy when he did. But I love this quote. Jonathan Edwards said, I think it my duty. Talking about his preaching. He said, I think it my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Provided they are being raised by truth. And they are comfortable. I'm sorry, and and they are conformable to the nature of the truth that raises them. Listen to that again. I think it my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are being raised by truth and they are conformable to the nature of the truth that raises them. The truth of who Jesus is should raise our affections through the roof. Amen? If you're not impacted spiritually, emotionally, and your affections aren't aren't drawn because of the truth of who God is and what He's done, because of the picture of the risen Lamb that was slain that's given you access to the throne room of God, if you're not if your affections aren't drawn to, by that, then I then you're not hearing the truth and the reality of who God is. Amen. Picture in Isaiah six. into this area. There is a gravity to this. Is there not? You see Isaiah 6 where he comes into the presence of God and what does he do? He falls over. Out of what? Out of fear. Now, we do this all the time and we shouldn't. We always explain the fear of God away as if it's respect. It is respect. You know what else it is? Fear. Isaiah falls out of fear. He cannot stand. He doesn't just respect God and say, wow, he's really cool. No, he's scared. And his knees give out. And he falls out of fear. Because God is great. Amen? There is a gravity to our worship. And I think sometimes we, we miss the gravity of our worship. Listen to Isaiah 8, 11 through 14. 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become your sanctuary. What is he saying? Listen, don't fear COVID. Don't fear famine, pestilence, war, politics, Democrats, Republicans. Don't fear the things that people fear. Fear the God who is the God who is in, in charge of your soul, who is in charge of the world. Fear, fear God, as it says in the Gospels, who can kill your soul. Fear Him. And as, listen to this, this is important. As you fear Him because of who He is, and you let Him be your dread, instead of all those other things, what is the last part? Verse 14. And He will become your sanctuary. As you fear the reality of who God is, the gravity of who He is, the awesomeness of who He is, the power of who He is, you then get to come into a place where He becomes the great and powerful thing that hides you under His wing, who is your sanctuary. He's the eye of the hurricane. While the winds blow around with great fear and power and destruction, it's beautiful and peaceful and sanctuary inside. Amen? That's the God that we worship. There's a, there is a gravity to it. There's a gravity and a gladness, as Piper said. A gravity and a gladness. Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. There is a gravity to who He is and a gladness because of who He is and the way that He deals with us in Christ. Amen? This is who we worship. So what does all of this mean? The true worshiper in spirit and in truth as we worship God together, as we move forward in worship. What's the measure of this? The essence of it? I think Piper describes it well in God being glorified in us as we're satisfied in Him. But what does that mean? Life is easy? No. Here's a good way to think about it. When everything else is stripped away, do you still worship? Are you still satisfied in Him as your greatest good? the job when a loved one passes away when you're isolated and lonely and home and you, you don't see hope when financial struggles strike when hopes and dreams in this world don't pan out the way you had anticipated 
greatest joy. When you find your hope and your joy and your affection still in Christ. The ultimate value. The one to be worshipped. We pursue the joy in God as our highest duty. Worship is not about his gifts. Our worship's about him. And you know what's interesting about worshiping God is it'll have hundreds of good effects, will it not? As we come and worship together as the church, we do it because of him, because he is our greatest joy, because he is our affection, because he is the one worthy to be worshiped. But as we worship God together, our marriages get better, we raise our kids better. We become better citizens, we become better workers, we become better everything as we grow in Him and worship Him together. We don't worship Him for those things, we worship Him because He is the end, but there are incredible effects to the way we worship Him with all of life, amen? What we see is God calling us to an all of life worship. We also see that all of life is is about worship, the worship of God. In our personal life, in our family life, and corporately as the church. So what is he calling us to? Don't neglect the worship of God. Don't settle for mud pies in the dirt when you can have a vacation at the beach. Don't settle for counterfeit things as our lives and our affections for those things spill over into praise and spill over into worship, the one who ultimately demands our worship and who is to be ultimately glorified in our lives as we enjoy and, 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 and live in and move in and have our being in Him is God. Amen? So, what else are you doing in 2021 other than the worship of God? Together in this place, around your table, at home with your family, dads with your kids, moms and dads together in your marriage. Luther said the worship of God should be free at table, in private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, by all people, at all times. Whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. <laughs> the Martin Luther. Mincing words, right? Let's make this year a year of worship. Amen? Pray with me. God, we thank you for who you are. You are the one to be worshipped. You are of ultimate value. As a deer pants for the water, our soul thirsts for you. Help us to long for you. 
of our affections to be drawn towards you through our singing, through our preaching, through our prayer, as we come to the Lord's table and remember the gospel and the reality of your sacrifice, as we witness baptism, people publicly display that they're a part of your family. We engage in corporate worship. Help us to long for you more and more. To be satisfied in you. And nothing else. In Jesus' name, everybody say. Stand in response.